some upstanding citizen decided to snap me uh, without a mask. And at one level, you could say, oh, this is just a wonderfully healthy demonstration of the fact that no one in Australia is above the law. Or you could say it's a pathetic illustration of our contemporary tendency to dob and snitch on people. You take your pick, I guess, uh, which interpretation you prefer. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life and now to this week's episode. Well, hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It is wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today and just want to remind all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Also remember to tell us your questions uh, through the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 and we'll get to them at the end of each podcast. Tony, a lot to talk about, and I want to start with 500 bucks. 500 bucks. It's a bit of a sting, uh, but I bet you what stings a bit more is getting dobbed on by someone in your local community, which is what happened to you a few days ago. You were dobbed on uh, for not wearing a mask outdoors after you'd been for a surf, and you were hit with a $500 fine for contravening the public health orders. Can you tell us what happened? Sure, Daniel. Look, it's really pretty simple. I was out surfing with a mate at the Bower. It's an iconic Sydney surfing spot and it was a gorgeous morning with a beautiful sort of rolling wave, which is perfect for the for the aged longboarder. Um, after we'd been out for an hour or so, it was coffee time. So I drove my car, got, I got changed into some jeans and a sloppy joe, drove the car to the coffee shop, got out of the car, walked briskly down. Uh, my mate went and grabbed the coffee. And while we were waiting for the, while I was waiting for the coffee, there were lots of passers-by and I engaged in a bit of banter with a few of them. Now, exercise is permitted. Um, drinking is permitted. Um, I thought I was at all times within the law reasonably interpreted, but yes, Momentarily, I was maskless between the brisk walk to the coffee shop and uh, my mate rocking up with the cup of coffee. And I guess that was when some upstanding citizen decided to snap me uh, without a mask and then uh, report me, first of all, to news.com and subsequently, it seems, to the police. Now, at one level, you could say, oh, this is just a wonderfully healthy demonstration of the fact that no one in Australia is above the law, or you could say it's a, a pathetic illustration of our contemporary tendency to dob and snitch on people. Uh, <laughs> you take your pick, I guess, uh, which interpretation yeah. you prefer. Do you know who did this? Look, I done some kind of a photo shoot 
going on near the Bauer Cafe. And I imagine that uh, the sort of people who participate in photo shoots are probably well connected with the, uh, the media and uh, many of them, I dare say, wouldn't be great fans of centre-right politics and former Conservative Prime Ministers. So I suspect that's probably where the snitching came. Right. And did your mate get a fine as well or was it just you? Well, look, uh, uh, my mate's... Uh, uh, he's remained nameless. I'm not identify him even on this podcast, Daniel. But I guess uh, if you're not a notorious person, uh, people don't have any particular interest in dobbing you in. Uh, but if you are a notorious person, well, then it's uh, it's a different story. It is interesting that on the day that the news of my fine came through. Uh, the health minister in New South Wales, my friend Brad Hazard, was asked about the fact that there were literally thousands and thousands of people maskless on Bondi Beach and other beaches because it was a it was a beautiful day uh, last Saturday, and he made the very reasonable point that in fact the safest place you can be in terms of COVID is outdoors <laughs> in uh, a beach setting. So uh, it was no big deal not wearing a mask, but that's not actually how the health orders uh, are crafted. I guess there were three points I made after the news broke and I got buttonholed by the media. The first uh, was that uh, while I thought I was acting within the law reasonably interpreted, I wasn't going to challenge the fine because I didn't want to waste court time and police time. The second point I made was that uh, I never thought dobbing and snitching was part of the Australian character and the sooner we get away from this health police state mindset, the better. Third point that I was tempted to make and didn't actually make it to the media uh, is that there are no health arguments whatsoever for mask wearing outdoors because there is almost no evidence for community transmission outdoors. And yet I think this is just another one of those situations where, as the New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro said the other day, uh, the media have effectively bullied the politicians into being harsher than they wanted. Um, Barillaro was making that point uh, in respect of the curfew that was applied in parts of Sydney. He said there was no health argument for it. It was just the media that bullied us into it. Well, likewise, I think it was the media that bullied the New South Wales government uh, into a mask mandate outdoors. What does that say about Australia? Who runs the country? Is it the media or the, the politicians then? Well, I think the big problem from the beginning, I've made this point on earlier editions of the podcast, Daniel, uh, the basic problem is that from the beginning of this pandemic, we haven't treated it as a serious health issue, we've treated it as some kind of national crisis, uh, the contemporary equivalent of a world war almost. And once you start to see health issues in almost apocalyptic terms, I think you're going to get things wrong. You're going to lose your sense of, of proportion Tony, a couple of things there that come up. I want to focus on one part of it, which is you mentioned that these health orders, some of them, many of them, uh, seemingly have very little to do with the risk of 
contracting and transmitting COVID. And you've said you're going to pay the fine because you don't want to trouble the police or the courts, which is fair enough. But I reckon this gets to something bigger and broader, which is as a conservative and someone who cares very deeply about the rule of law, what do you do when there's so many laws that apparently are so unjust and arbitrary? I mean, complying with them and following the laws seemingly gives justification to them. What's the right thing for your average Australian to do? Should we engage in a bit of civil disobedience? Should we stop following some of these rules? Do we just go to the beach and not wear a mask? What's you know what's the right approach to take? It's a very good question, Daniel. Um, look, you're right. As a conservative, obviously, I think that we should obey the law. On the other hand, I also think that the law should be reasonable and it should be intelligently applied. For instance, is it some kind of a heinous thing to do 62 or 65 kilometres an hour uh, in a 60 zone? Um, I don't really think it is. The law has to be reasonable uh, and it's got to be intelligently and sensitively and reasonably applied. Uh, If the law is unreasonable, well, I think we've got an obligation uh, to try to change the law and that means, I suppose, bringing as much pressure as we can to bear on our politicians to to be reasonable. Now, I I certainly think that there have been all sorts of uh, aspects to the pandemic which have been unreasonable and over the top. I mean, look in particular at the really cruel way that these border closures have been administered. Uh, The fact that so many people have been uh, denied the ability to get across the border for medical treatment, for work, for family reunion. Uh, uh, I mean, we've seen tragic cases here uh, of, uh, of the denial of, uh, of, 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 of movement, which just seems completely inhumane uh, and wrong and un-Australian. Mm. And uh, frankly, it, 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 it appalls me that... Uh, uh, bureaucrats and ministers haven't been more reasonable here. But this gets back to the whole safety first mindset uh, or indeed the safety only mindset. I mean, if you, if, you look at the, if you look at election results in Western Australia and Queensland, if you look at opinion polls from uh, April through really until the present, it seems that the public have wanted um, their, their governments to maximally apply these things because we've been in such a a lather of fear and anxiety about COVID. Now, I'm not one of those people who says that COVID was just a cold with muscles or just a slightly more significant version of the seasonal flu. It, It always was a serious health problem. But by gee, uh, we have often not been at our best in responding to it. Hey, fair enough. Hey, Tony, just one more on this. Um, is there anything you'd like to say to the person that dobbed you in? Oh, look, uh, I guess uh, let uh, he or she who is without sin cast the first stone. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Look, I want to move now on to another topic, uh, which gets to a lot of the issues we've been talking about over the last few weeks in terms of the issues of, of the political class being detached from 
the concerns and aspirations of mainstream Australians, mm. which I think has been exemplified with the COVID laws. And that's the departure of Joel Fitzgibbon mm. uh, from Parliament. Now, he announced a couple of days ago that he would be leaving Parliament at the next election. Fitzgibbon, of course, is the Labor member for Hunter in New South Wales. Uh, this is coal country. Uh, he's held that since, since uh, seat since 1996, and his dad held that seat uh, for a number of years before him. Now, Fitzgibbon is on the right of Labor. He's seen as someone who's in favour of policies which support workers, support jobs, uh, sensible on climate change. Um, and this has now opened up a broader discussion about the future of the Labor Party and what kind of policies they're going to pursue. Tony, can you give us your insights into what Joel's departure says about this current state of the Labor Party and their future? Look, I've got a lot of time for Joel. I think he's a very decent human being. I think that um, he's been a real force for good inside the Labor Party. Haven't always agreed with everything that he said, but uh, but a thoroughly decent bloke, a thoroughly reasonable human being and a very constructive contributor uh, to our public life. And I think people like Joel are if you like, a dying breed inside the Labor Party. Joel was one of the very few contemporary Labor MPs who'd run a business. Uh, He'd worked with his hands. Uh, He was very much a homegrown product who'd been the Deputy Mayor of Cessnock before he uh, came into Parliament, Uh, a country country man born and bred. So, look, uh, he'll be a real loss to the Labor Party a real loss to the Labor Party. They're also losing Chris Hayes from the seat of Fowler. Apparently she's about, he's about to be replaced by Christina Keneally. Well, again, uh, Chris Hayes, a very decent bloke, um, a very down-to-earth person from a traditional uh, Labor right background, almost a DLP background, if you like. And I think that's a, a very honourable tradition in the Labor Party, which... It loses uh, uh, to its great long-term cost because there were lots of people uh, out there in the community who quite liked the idea of a political party which was broadly socially conservative, uh, which was uh, strongly patriotic, but which at the same time was uh, very much interested in a, be- in, in a fair go for the battler. Uh, and that was, if you like, the old Ben Chifley-type Labor Party. That, uh, that's the tradition which people like Joel Fitzgibbon uh, stand in. So, look, it's, it's a, a real pity for Labor. And in the end, it's a pity for, for all of us because whether you identify more with the Liberal Party or with the Labor Party, uh, you've got to accept that at some point in time, the party that's not yours is going to be in government and you want it to be the best possible government, Um, and that means wanting the party that's not your own party to be as good as it possibly can be. Uh, I I take no joy in the fact that the Labor Party is moving to the green left all the time because what that means is that the next Labor government, whenever that is, will be a much worse government than it ought to be. It will be nothing like... Uh, the Curtin-Chifley government. It will be nothing like the Hawke-Keating government. And um, Curtin and Chifley did a good job 
um, Hawke and Keating, by and large, did a good job. And we want the next Labor government to be as good as it can be. And without people like Joel and Chris Hayes, it won't be. So Labor moving to the green left is leaving workers without a voice in the Labor Party. Who is speaking for these people in this country? So you mentioned uh, you mentioned you know working class battlers, patriotic, traditional values. I reckon that's anywhere from twenty to forty percent of the of the voting public. But uh, I got to say, I don't think the Liberals are really speaking for them on on many issues. Labor is moving further to the left. Um, I think many of these Australians feel like they don't have a voice in politics. Do you get that sense as well? Well, this is a very fair point. Uh, I used to say uh, back in the day of the Howard government that you had people like Bob Baldwin, who was a, uh, a fitter and turner before he became a member of parliament. You had people like Albie Schultz, who was an itinerant abattoir worker before he went into parliament. Uh, you had uh, Ian Causley, who was a cane cutter uh, before he went into parliament. We've still got Warren Inch, who was a, uh, a crocodile shooter uh, and a rancher before he went into parliament. Uh, you need a parliament which is representative of the broad brush of the Australian community. You cannot have a parliament that is full of lawyers and former political staffers. And that, I regret to say, is what we are increasingly moving towards. Now, I think Labor is is much further down this track than the coalition. Uh, it is still possible for, if you like, uh, uh, just people to emerge from the community uh, without having cut their teeth in student politics and uh, then been political staffers and uh, party and union officials, um, people who haven't been apparatchiks from day one can still become members of parliament uh, through the coalition. But it is becoming increasingly difficult for them, even in the coalition, and it's almost impossible in the ALP. I used to say that the if, if, if we were ever to have an engine driver become Prime Minister, a la Ben Chifley, uh, that person would undoubtedly be a coalition member of parliament. But I think it's increasingly unlikely that we ever again will have mm. an engine driver uh, as, a, uh, as a member of parliament because, or as a prime minister because if you spend the 10 or 15 years necessary to become an engine driver, you've almost certainly left your run too late uh, to become a prime minister. Oh, gee, I mean, that's a great shame um, that you say that. And I want to I want to build on this a bit, and you, you can speak to this with a lot of authority because last week was the eighth anniversary of your thumping win in 2013, mm-hmm. which was a watershed moment when we look back for many reasons which we can discuss. But in this context, you had Tony's tradies. You had Howard's Battlers. You had Menzies' Forgotten People. So these are all, I think, the the working class, middle class um, families from the suburbs and the outer suburbs that are moving from Labor to the coalition. And you spoke, you gave them a voice. It seems to me that the Liberals are more concerned with winning Higgins in Melbourne's inner suburbs than Hunter in coal country. And I think that's a very big problem that's frustrating this realignment of culture to politics. Uh, what do you think? Look, if you're a political leader who wants to stay in government or win government, you want to win seats wherever you can. The problem is that the 
policies required to win Higgins might be different from the policies required to, to win outer metropolitan and, and regional seats. Now, in the end, you've got to govern for the Australian mainstream and you've got to govern for the majority of the people. You can never betray anyone, but uh, you've got to try to pitch yourself to your understanding of what the real Australian heartland is. And look, uh, I think that there is uh, nothing wrong with doing what you can to ensure that our coal miners continue to have secure jobs uh, because let's face it, coal continues to provide something like 70% of the East Coast's energy. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> pretty close to 90% of our baseload energy. Uh, coal from Australia continues to provide power for hundreds of millions of people overseas. Our coal happens to be much less uh, emission intensive than coals from other country countries. And of course, the latest coal-fired power stations are 30 to 40 percent uh, less emissions intensive than the older-fashioned kind. So what earthly reason is there for people to be fanatically opposed to coal? Now, Joel was making this point perhaps in a slightly milder way inside the Labor Party. He's gone. Uh, I was making that point as strongly as I could as opposition leader and then as prime minister. I'm gone. Who speaks for people like that today? Well, obviously, you've got Matt Canavan and people like that speaking out, Keith Pitt uh, speaking yep. out. But uh, they deserve a voice. They absolutely deserve a voice. And frankly, uh, the inner city types, including in my own electorate, uh, need to be reminded politely uh, but nevertheless forcefully that uh, we cannot run a modern society and a modern economy on unreliable intermittent power. We just can't. We just can't. Now, one day, uh, battery technology might have so advanced uh, that things have changed. It's possible that down the track um, we might be able to produce using intermittent renewables enough hydrogen uh, to give ourselves effectively baseload power from renewables. But this is all highly speculative. And in the meantime, we need 24-7 power. We need to keep the lights on. Uh, if we are going to be able to maintain some kind of a decent manufacturing base in this country. And, and that requires people being prepared to speak out. And too few people in our public life are right now. I think that is a great place for us to move to our questions for this yep. week in the Tell uh, Tony Abbott segment. And a number of these questions touch on what we've been discussing and they come both from our social media accounts and also from the Australian Heartland Hotline. Um, the first one I'm going to ask is actually about Christina Keneally and it's a good question because you mentioned her um, earlier on in the context of her moving to a Western Sydney seat. And this question comes from uh, Chris and Chris asks this, doesn't Christina Keneally being parachuted into a seat in the western suburbs of Sydney uh, capture everything that's wrong with politics today? I don't think it's going to do the Labor Party any good. 
I, I'm not a huge fan of Christina Keneally. Um, I think she's uh, a pretty abrasive uh, public figure. And certainly every position that she's ever had appears to be a result of head office patronage of one sort or another. And why you'd want to parachute someone in from Scotland Island uh, to Cabram Matter, I think if I were a Labor member of parliament, a Labor member of branches out there, I'd be saying, what the hell is going on? Um, you, you're making a mockery of our Labor Party membership. Uh, you're making a mockery of, uh, of internal party democracy if you do things like that. So, look, I don't think the Labor Party is going to do itself any good. And frankly, yeah, I think that it's shenanigans like this which do very much show up contemporary Labor as a kind of green left insiders club which gives uh, the Morrison government its best chance of success at next year's election. And just before we go to our next question, I just wanted to take this opportunity to remind all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode and that if you would like your question answered by Tony, uh, you can ring up to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 uh, to leave your question. Uh, Tony, our next question is from Marcus and Marcus asks this. Why are the premiers and health bureaucrats still locking us up when the rest of the world has moved on? Well, I suppose in the first instance, it's because the countries which have opened up have tended to have uh, substantially higher vaccination rates than we have now. Britain was, I think, at about 70% double jabbed when it had its Freedom Day Back in July, Britain's now at 90% plus adults having a first jab and 80% plus having a second jab. So they're in a in a in a better vaccination position than we are. I just hope that our governments do stick to the national cabinet plan and they really do significantly open us up at 70% and fully open us up at 80% because we cannot go on too much longer living the kind of half-life that we have and being subject to the kind of um, upending of normal life that we have been over the past 18 months. Well, Tony, thank you for that. And thank you again for another wonderful discussion. I did and this is without any warning or without any notice, uh, but our listeners are very much enjoying enjoying our final thoughts uh, yeah. for the day, whatever they may be. Um, Tony, are you able to share with us any of your final thoughts as we, we head into another week, hopefully, uh, as restrictions start to ease up? Look, uh, you've sprung this one on me, Daniel. I guess <laughs> I should have anticipated it uh, back in the day uh, when I uh, was, uh, I suppose more routinely doing these sorts of discussions, perhaps in a more antagonistic environment. I, 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 I would always try to anticipate everything and have a line ready. I should have done so today. Look, if we go, if we go back to wartime, 
and the stories that our parents and great-grandparents told us. Uh, apparently, offices and homes in Britain were frequently adorned with uh, little posters enjoining people to keep calm and carry on. Um, we don't want to be too calm because if we are too calm, we can become complacent and fail to change the things that we need to change. But at the end of the day, having done everything we can to make things better, we do just have to carry on come what may. Uh, these have been incredibly frustrating times, the most frustrating times most of us have ever lived through. Hopefully there really is light at the end of the tunnel now and we do just have to carry on into the light. Indeed, wise words, Tony. Thank you for that. And I hope you can get out for a surf uh, in the near future and not get dobbed on and cop another $500 fine. It was the most expensive surf I've ever been. (laughs) I bet, I bet. Tony, thank you very much. Good on you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.